Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 67 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Terry Brooks. His first novel, The Sword of Shannara, played an important role in establishing fantasy as a major publishing category, and 23 of his novels have now appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. His latest book, The Dark Legacy of Shannara, Wards of Fairy, is out now. So Comcast decided to shut off my internet with no warning right before we recorded this interview, so that's why I don't appear in it. But I'll be back after the interview for our panel discussion on magical items in fantasy, mythology, and games with guest geek Matt London. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Terry Brooks. Welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here, David. Okay, so first of all, just tell us about your new novel, Wards of Fairy. What's it about? This is the first in a trilogy that I have been thinking about for quite a bit of time. It's in the future of the Shannara world uh, and uh, not in the prehistory where I have been working. It is a direct sequel to the Hydruid set of books, and it's about a topic that has been discussed ever since I wrote Elfstones back in the day, 1982 or whatever it was when it published, about the Elfstones themselves, uh, which were uh, forged in the uh, ancient world of fairy before humans, and uh, nobody knows what happened to them. And somebody's always saying, you know, well, what happened to the other Elfstones? The only ones that survived are these blue Elfstones, and we've never heard anything more. So after not having an answer for that for the better part of 30 years, I thought maybe I'd come up with one, and that's what this book is about. So when I was at the Odyssey Writers Workshop, you came and you were our writer in residence. And while you were there, you told us this story about how when you submitted your first novel, The Sword of Shannara, to Lester Del Rey, he made you do just massive, massive revisions on it. Could you talk about that? Well, you know, I, that was my first complete novel, and I was pretty much of a neophyte in the craft area. Uh, and there were, I had rewritten that book three times before I sent it in, as a matter of fact. But there were a lot of places where it was weak. And it, it, I also was wordy, much more wordy than I am now, certainly. Um, and it just sort of went on and on. And he, he got irritated with the fact that I was doing a lot of things with weather reports and uh, descriptions of, of forest lands and so on. And he said, cut all this stuff out of here. He says, we don't need this. It just slows the story down. Just get to the story. It's sort of like uh, Elmore Leonard saying, you know, leave out all the words that people skip. That was his approach to writing as a commercial fiction writer, and I, I believed in that. So I rewrote some areas uh, numerous times. I rewrote the ending repeatedly. He didn't like the ending, and he wanted it differently, so I wrote it uh, two or three times, and then uh, finally got it to a place where he was, he was happy with it. He threatened at one point, because I wasn't moving fast enough, he said, well, look, if you can't do this, why don't I do it? I'll write it for you. And of course, that scared the bejesus out of me, so uh, I went back and got it right the next time, and he was happy after that. I remember you saying that you had sent in your manuscript on white paper, and he sent it back, and in between each pages of white paper, there was a yellow piece of paper with changes he wanted made to the preceding page. Yeah, that was, uh, that was with the second book. In between Sword and Elfstones, I wrote another Shannara book, and it wasn't any good. I, I, and I wrote 400 pages of this thing, and, uh, then I, and I realized I couldn't figure out what the ending ought to be, and I sent it to him. So he uh, sent it back to me saying, well, the, what you need to do with this is burn it. 
And you know, I was in shock. Uh, and I couldn't believe he, I thought he was mistaken. You know, I thought he's clearly delusional here. This, this is, I just wrote a book that sold, you know, umpteen million copies. What do you mean it isn't any good? But he sent the manuscript back to me and uh, every second or third page, he stuck a yellow sheet in there describing in detail uh, what was wrong with what I was doing in that particular section of the book. And uh, after I read it all through, I saw that he was right, you know, that I, this book was no good. And there were so many problems with it that it was better to just ash can it and start over again. And uh, it was a, a little humble pie, but it was also a terrific uh, writing uh, lesson. So will that ever be made public, do you think? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't think I've burned it yet, but I should. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't any good. Uh, it, it, it was a bad story. It had some good aspects, and what I did with it uh, after a while was I cannibalized it and took out names and certain elements and stuck them in Wish Song and some of the other books, uh, and they worked out fine there. But the, the story as a whole had all kinds of problems, and, and there would be no point in yeah, I'm not one of those writers who thinks that uh, once you have some success, you should immediately publish everything you ever wrote. Oh, I just thought maybe as a uh, as a writing lesson. You know. Oh, as an object lesson. Well, yeah. yeah. I don't think I want to do that while I'm dead, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be around for the fallout from that one. Uh, maybe my uh, kids won't mind, and they'll they'll do that. I mean, one thing that I've always heard about Lester Del Rey as an editor was that he had this really good sense for what would sell. Uh, yeah. What, what, what do you think made him so good at predicting that? You know, I don't know. Uh, that's a very good question. He just had great story sense. And he knew what would work and what wouldn't. And everybody in the company uh, that I knew over the years and that knew him said he was the best story doctor they ever knew. That he could take a book and he could determine what worked and what didn't work and tell you exactly where those places were and, and you know, not necessarily what you needed to do to fix them. He would leave that to you, but he would tell you where it was weak. Uh, and I believe that's true. He, he certainly was the best I've ever worked with in that regard. And uh, probably the reason that I'm still around is that for those first three or four books, he just beat up on me unmercifully, <laughs> he gave me rewrite and rewrite. Um, until I got it right. But boy, did I learn a lot in that, in that time period about, you know, uh, how to craft a story and, and how, how to make it a commercial, a commercial success. And of course, they all sold like crazy. So something must have been right. And actually, at the time that Sword of Shannara came out, Lester Del Rey had seen that there was a demand for fantasy when fantasy was considered sort of second tier. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the prevailing uh, opinion in the publishing industry was that fantasy was a niche genre, and you could sell five or 10,000 copies of a good book, but that was it, except for Tolkien. Man, but that was Tolkien, and, and, and he was gone anyway, so there was no point in fussing about that. And everything else that was out there just wasn't ever, it wasn't bestseller material, and Lester thought this was a lot of hooey. I found all this out again years later. At the time, I'm sure I thought that he just had great judgment about my book, but he basically said he set out to take a Tolkien-esque kind of story, put it out there as a fantasy, and, and sell it in bestseller numbers. And that's what he did with, with Sword. And he told me that I was going to take it on the chin over this from many, many sides, that people were going to hate it, that people were going to say it was a ripoff, that people were going to do this and the other thing. And 
I said, I don't care, you know, I want to get my foot in the door uh, and figure out how I can do this for a living, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer, and I have no clue how to go about doing it. Here was somebody whose work I respected saying, I can make this happen, so I did it. Actually, speaking of Lester Delray, I just looked him up on Wikipedia as I was prepping for this, and it says, uh, Delray often told people that his real name was Ramon Philippe Alvarez Delray, <laughs> or, or sometimes even Ramon Philippe San Juan Mario Silvio Enrico Smith Harcourt Bray Sierra E. Alvarez Del Rey E. De Los Verdes. Uh, yeah, he also had, uh, he also told people he was born in various places. He told uh, them his age, and that changed uh, almost uh, about once a month. He made up, uh, I don't know how much of them were true, but he, he had various histories about his life and what he'd done during his life. Um, but I, I don't think to the bitter end any, anybody knew the whole truth about his story or his history. And, and, and I think most of the histories you read probably have some truth and some, some, some that he just offered up. Was he, I mean, was he strange in person? Did you ever have strange experiences with him? Or? Oh, you know, he and Judy and them were both, I don't know that, you know, they would seem strange to some people. But I kind of liked it. I mean, they had uh, stuffed animals they talked to. They had a lifestyle that involved fantasy in, as part of it. But when it came to the business end of things, there wasn't anybody smarter than either one of them. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew how to do it. I heard you say in an interview that the publishing industry has really changed since you published Sword of Shannara and that editors don't have the status that they used to have. Could you talk about that? Well, it's probably obvious to anybody in the business, at least, uh, that the publishing industry has vastly changed. An awful lot of it's been changed by the Internet and by the, uh, the new uh, avenues of publishing that have opened up, uh, by the presence of the e-books and, uh, you know, self-publishing online, all that's different. Uh, the publishing houses have all shrunk from, not all of them, but a great deal of them become conglomerates or appendages to conglomerates. Uh, really, the marketing department, has more weight now than the editors do. In the old days, the editors were pretty much top of the line. They made the determinations. The thing I lament most is that when, when I broke into publishing, you were given a, a fair amount of time to work with an editor uh, before they cut you loose. You know, they spent time teaching you how to be better. And uh, now, really, there's an awful lot of pressure on new writers to produce right away. If you don't sell, then, you know, it's on to somebody else. And uh, that's not true universally, but it's true to a great extent. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate, and I wish, uh, I wish there was more time for the mid-list writers to find a way to be better, best-selling. You know, I, I miss those days. It was more of a family relationship. It's, it's much more, you know, arm's-length uh, op operation these days than it used to be. Or maybe that's just me talking 35 years later, too. So you're just about to head out on a new book tour. What's that like? And have you ever had any just strange experiences on tour? Yeah, David, but we don't have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> I've had many, many strange experiences on tour, uh, but not with the readers, I hasten to say. Uh, I, I have a really good reading audience, uh, and I've never, ever had a problem with them. Now, the minute I say this, I will, but uh, up to this point, no. So, so who have you had strange experiences with on tour? <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the booksellers are a little strange from time to time. You know, I, in fact, uh, one of the things that happened was when we did Odyssey. I was staying at a place nearby there, and 
Uh, on the night that uh, we stayed over, uh, at the end of things, uh, there was some kind of a wedding there, and it got totally out of control. And they were outside the door where I was staying. I think we were probably the only people in that hotel that weren't at the wedding party. And they were pounding on the walls and the doors. So I went out there and told them to shut up. And uh, that brought even worse trouble. Then I had to call the police. And so yeah, it was a little bad. Uh, that was fairly strange. But uh, that wasn't directly connected with the book part of things. But I remember Odyssey for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you know, I, ha I once went to a city, uh, I'll give you a w one example, I went, and this has been back a ways now, but I once went to a city where I was doing uh, a couple of chain stores as well as a couple of independents, and the two were not speaking to each other. Uh, I don't know what that was about, but they weren't, and uh, so as a result, in order to make, I didn't have a car or anything, I was being transported, so in order to get from one to the other, I was taken to a parking lot in an industrial area and dropped. Um, and uh, one car left, and then the other came up. It was very gangland-like. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe this is it for me. I'll end up, you know, as a footnote in a paper somewhere. So back in the 90s, there was a Shannara computer game that was developed by Laurie and Corey Cole, who actually created one of my favorite computer game series, the Quest for Glory series. Did you interact with them at all or have any involvement uh, with that game? I don't. I don't. You know, I, I, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Do you remember signing the contract or something? I uh, know. I don't remember a thing. <laughs> okay. It's a true story, you know? Uh, I, 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 my problem is it used to be, it's less so now because I can't do this anymore, but it used to be that uh, my whole focus was on books because I'm very much a book guy. Uh, so, um, you know, I paid attention to the book stuff. And everything else, uh, I just say, uh, well, whatever you think to my agent or my editor, and you, you take care of it, don't tell me about it. Uh, and then they would make the decision, uh, which probably shows you how naive I am. But um, I just didn't care. And I still don't really care about much, except for the books. And, uh, well, maybe the movies at some point. Uh, what is the status on the movie stuff? Anything going on with that? Yeah, the, the uh, Magic Kingdom series is over at uh, Warner Brothers uh, and with a development company called Weed Road. Um, and they are in the process of, and I've met with those people, actually met with them face to face, which was some kind of, you know, first. Uh, and uh, they are in the process of working on a second draft of a screenplay uh, for Magic Kingdom for sale. And I'd say that, that looks pretty, pretty likely. And at the moment, uh, uh, the actor attached to the project is uh, Steve Carell. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that would be cool. And he's perfect for Ben Holiday, I think. I think he's terrific. And, you know, I've seen his movies, and the, particularly the last couple, and I just see him in that role, and I think he would work perfectly. So I'm hopeful that he won't give up on this and that he'll hang in there the way that uh, sometimes when luck works, they do. And the Shannara series is um, in the process of and in the final gasping stages of being signed up with a company that's going to uh, look for a Game of Thrones type uh, format and uh, a venue for it. Cool. Well, actually, I mean, speaking of the Landover series and Magic Kingdom for Sale, I just saw that the sixth book came out in 2009 after, I think, a 14-year gap. Yeah. Uh, why was there such a big gap in that series? Well, you know, when I finished up in, uh, in the 90s with it, I sort of didn't have anywhere else I wanted to go with it. And so, you know, I put it aside and, and 
readers of the series who are a strong group in their own right kept saying, well, when's the next one? When's the next one? And I said, well, when they make a movie, you know, then, then I'll write another book. And it was, you know, I was up with the movie, various movie companies about three times and each time it fell through at some stage or another. And finally, uh, it got to a point where I was starting to feel uh, guilty for not doing another book. So I decided to take it down one generation and write a story that was centered around uh, Ben and, and Willow's uh, child, Mastaya, who is a, has magic in her own right. And, uh, try to throw in all of the, the usual characters as, as backdrop for the story. And forget about the movie because, uh, you know, I may not live that long. So I wrote the story and then and now I, I'm back to having a, a follow-up to it, uh, but no time to write it at the present time. So I'm back to waiting for the movie. I hope there wasn't a huge cliffhanger at the, at the end of book five. No. There's no cliffhangers at the end of those series. At the end of that series, those books are all self-contained. But there's usually something at the end of the story uh, that suggests what might be coming next, and uh, that was particularly true with Princess of Landover, where you get a get a sense that uh, the witch Nightshade is going to have a, a major role in the next uh, in the next book. So I've got it in mind, but I again, I've just decided I, I don't have time to write it right now, so I'm waiting on it. You know, I'm buried in Shannara. Uh, this whole series uh, with uh, Wards of Fairy and the other two, uh, they're all coming out in six-month uh, increments, you know. So that consumed my life until recently. Um, but now that's behind me, so I can move on and maybe, maybe step back and look at some other options about what I want to do. So I saw that you recently contributed a short story to the Unfettered Anthology. Could you talk about that project? Yeah, uh, this is Sean Speakman's uh, uh, project. Uh, he's pretty well known in the field because of his work uh, through the chat, through the uh, Brooks website, and and also because he does a lot of ebook signings uh, with writers coming through. And he goes to the conventions. He's a correspondent for uh, the Random House group as well. Uh, reports blogs for them and so forth. So he asked for for stories, and so uh, I contributed one along with practically everybody else you can think of. These are all contributions in which the money will go towards paying off his, his considerable medical bills. He's got a long history of struggling with cancer. He's had three or four different kinds. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a good guy. He just, he's, we, uh, the one good thing about this field, I think, is that uh, writers in the science fiction fantasy both tend to band together and help out people who need it. Um, and uh, my story was one that I had written many years ago for... Del Rey, uh, uh, which, which was actually kind of a prototype precursor to the Word and Void series in, in, a, in a somewhat different format. And uh, it appeared in a, in a small anthology from, uh, by Del Rey authors of, uh, 20 some years ago. Uh, so I pulled that one out and said, well, here, try this. It might be kind of fun for people. So, and Sean, you mentioned that he helps run your website, and I saw that he also checks your books for continuity errors. Uh, yes. Can you think of any big errors that you're really glad that he caught? He's the guy who, who's got an encyclopedic knowledge of the Chandler books. So when I miss a description uh, in some fashion, or I have said something is true, which turns out was, in fact, not true, he's the guy who catches all that stuff, so that when uh, these books get published, uh, all those 12 and 15 year olds that uh, read everything and memorize it don't write me letters about how I made a mistake. 
I mean, some of these, <laughs> some of these readers, they, they, they've read them dozens of times. Some of them only read these books. That's, now, now, that to me is mind-boggling. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example of one that he didn't catch, but that uh, came to light some years later, and that was in uh, Druid of Shannara, where uh, the Druid Walker bow lost his arm early on, and uh, so he went around uh, for the rest of the book with, with the one arm gone at the elbow. But uh, in the course of my writing, the arm changed uh, from time to time. And uh, the cover art, they, they drew the cover uh, for, uh, the cover art was correct, but then they flipped it. So they lost, you know, it was the wrong arm. Uh, you know, those kinds of things I don't like to have to explain. And uh, yet somehow they always seem to get through. And Sean uh, is, is good enough at this sort of thing that he cuts back considerably on the number of errors that might otherwise appear. And, you know, 20, what have we got? 26 books here now, I think, all together with the ones that, that aren't published but are finished. Uh, 26 books later, you can't remember anything. You know, you might as well just forget it. You can, you can go back and read them. Um, or, you know, you can look at the companion volume, you know, World of Shannara, and try to find it in there. But you still miss stuff. And the more eyes you have on the, on the project, the better off you are. So in my case, uh, I read it. Uh, Judine reads it, Sean reads it, uh, and then it goes through several editorial drafts and my rereading and so on. So it gets a lot of eyes on before it gets out of there, and we still miss stuff. So how did Sean become your webmaster in the first place? Sean applied for the job, and uh, he, he actually wrote Del Rey and said, uh, you don't seem to have an official website. I want to be that website. So they contact me and they said, well, he lives out where you are. You want to check him out? So I went to his website. And, you know, at that time, this is early now in the, in the or late in the 1990s, I was not doing anything with websites. You know, I, I never read my stuff. I never go online to read what anybody says about me because, frankly, I don't care. And so I, I didn't know anything about this. They said, oh, yeah. And I said, do I have a website up there? And they said, yeah, you got about 150. And I said, Oh, that's not possible. And I said, well, just go on and look. So I went to Sean's website. It was clearly a, a great website. He'd done a heck of a job. And so I met him and we talked and I really liked what he had to say. And he worked for nothing. So I thought, well, you know, how, what can go wrong here? Uh, and uh, so, <laughs> of course, he doesn't work for nothing now, but he did that. <laughs> so that's, that started the, the, our relationship. And now Judina and I say, well, you know, he's our other child. <laughs> that uh, nobody knows about, but he's a, he's our, and he calls us as other parents. So we have a really close relationship. We have, you know, we've been through a lot together and, and I can't imagine trying to do uh, what I do with the website without Sean. I just can't imagine it. Okay. So as a Tolkien fan, are you looking forward to Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Hobbit? And what do you think about it being split into three separate movies? Well, first of all, I love The Lord of the Rings. I thought the, his, his take on it was terrific. Uh, yes, he didn't get everything in there, but then it wouldn't have been the same movie if he had, and I thought he made good decisions. I, I have seen the previews for the new one. I think it looks terrific also. I'm looking forward to it. I'm anxious, uh, anxious to see it. I'm not so sure about splitting it into three parts. That feels somewhat mercenary to me, but uh, maybe it'll turn out that it's a good decision. I don't know. I keep thinking about the Lord of the Rings in three parts and how big it is, and the Hobbit is tiny by comparison. So uh, is this really worth three parts, or, you know, what's the story on that? But we'll find out. Okay, great. And so finally, just are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? 
Oh boy. Well, I'm doing, uh, there's a couple things I should mention. I'm doing more online. Uh, so I am doing more e-stories, short stories online only. Uh, I'm going to do more of that in the next couple of years, uh, just because I've sort of gotten the hang of it now. I, never, I don't like short stories very much, but uh, I mean, I don't like writing them. I like reading them. Okay. But I'm not very good at them. But I've sort of gotten into it now, so I think I'm going to do a bunch more of those, and I'm committed to do three between now and next April. I was going to say, the other thing I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to do something new uh, that's not connected to anything I've done. Uh, and I hope to get started. Uh, I have a very specific story in mind, a very specific uh, uh, setting and characters and all of that. I, I know what I want to do. But I don't know. I don't. Have, I don't have the time right now. So, but I would like to start at some time uh, in the next three to five years. So that's kind of my my take on that. And at some point uh, in the next, well, probably in the next decade, certainly, I'm going to wrap up Shannon. All right, great. So Terry Brooks, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. It was a pleasure, David. I enjoyed talking with you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Terry Brooks for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing magical items in fantasy, mythology, and games. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Matt London, who you may remember from episodes 51, 52, and 63. He's a graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop and the New York University School of Film and Television. He's written about film, video games, and other stuff for Tor.com, Lightspeed, and Realms of Fantasy. And you can follow him on Twitter at TheMattLondon. Okay, and so I think we're just going to start out and talk about some of our favorite magical items, and and I think I'll just start with, you know, the the magical item I most wish I had is Frakir from Roger's Lost News Chronicles of Amber. In the second series, the protagonist Merlin has this. It's sort of a friendship bracelet, and it is invisible most of the time, and is psychically sensitive. And if there are uh, hostile intentions directed in his direction, it will sort of squeeze his wrist to warn him. And also he can throw it at people and it will kind of crawl up them like a worm and wrap itself around their throat and strangle them. And so it makes it really, it's really handy for a hero who travels around by himself a lot because it means he can just go to sleep in the forest or whatever and not worry about monsters coming and attacking him while he sleeps because the strangling cord will alert him to danger. But it doesn't talk, so it's kind of like, kind of like having a cat or something. You know, you have the... Uh, <laughs> the companionship without the endless chit-chat. So that's that's my number one thing. Uh, John, uh, what's your number one magical item? Uh, well, I mean, I like I love the bag of holding. Basically, it was a bag, but it sort of opened a portal to a, like an alternate dimension or whatever, and like you could just fill it with all kinds of shit, you know, so you could just put all your stuff in there. Man, that would have made moving a lot easier. But, uh, you know, I just moved. So, uh, it's on my mind. Uh, but, uh, wouldn't that be awesome if I could just, like, put all my bookshelves in this little pocket dimension and I could just, you know, pull off my books whenever I wanted them and I, I wouldn't have to ever move them ever again? That would be awesome. I'd love that. It seems like basically every character in video games must have a bag of holding. <laughs> yeah, I know, because it's like, you know, they just have so many weapons and they have so much, uh, so many items. Like, even, even in a game like Skyrim, which actually does have, like, sort of an encumbrance thing, so, like, you can only carry X amount of stuff. Even even with that, it's a ridiculous amount of stuff. I always sort of wondered with bags of holding, like, what does it actually look like when you... Like, say I, I own 50 swords and they're all in my bag of holding. Like, how do I find the one I want? Like, I would love to, like, have to be in a battle 
and just be rummaging through your bag of holding for like 20 minutes trying to find the right sword. Hmm. I knew I had one that was strong against undead <laughs> somewhere. God. Dragons, no. Bugbears, no. <laughs> and then you get killed. I, I kind of figured that there was some sort of elder magical component to it that would it, it would like basically help you find it. Like so, you like you know what you want that you have in there. You stick your hand in there and you grab it and you just pull it out. You know that's what I sort of imagined. I don't want to go on too much of a Harry Potter kick, but actually, the um, the Marauder's Map is another one that I always thought would have come really in handy in high school. When it's like, well, where's that person I really want to talk to? Just consult the map. Yeah, it's basically like a, the map of stalking, right? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But, you know, you got all, all superpowers can be used for good and evil. So, you know, you've got to make sure that you use your magical item for good. I guess, yeah, there, there, there's the tendency to misuse magical items. I remember, actually, before I really played Dungeons & Dragons, some of my friends at school were talking about it. You know, these are, these are teenage boys. And I would just hear all these really, like, disturbing stories about stuff they were coming up with. And so they're like, oh, yeah, so John found this belt, but then it turned out to be a belt of involuntary gender swap. And That's a real thing, too. There was a, there is a, there was a girdle that changed your gender of the character. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, one of the other, I guess there's a couple other items that sort of come to mind. Like, I mean, uh, there's things like Mjolnir, you know, Thor's hammer, um, which in D&D, uh, there, there was something called the Dwarven Thrower, which is basically the same thing. I mean, you know, essentially it's like an awesome magical hammer that like you can throw and like after it hits somebody, it, like it sort of comes back to you like a boomerang, you know? Um, and, and then there was an axe version called like the axe of hurling. Um, if Twitter can be believed, I, I couldn't remember the name of it. And somebody on Twitter said it was called the axe of hurling. And then, in, like, in D&D also, there's, uh, there was, like, cool things like the Vorpal Sword, uh, which is, like, basically, it's, like, a vibrating magical sword that can, like, cut through anything. Wait, does the Vorpal Sword actually vibrate, or did you just make that up? No, I think that's what it's supposed to do. Um, we can Google it real quick. Let's see. It goes snicker time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, because the Vorpal Sword is actually from, um... Jabberwocky. Yeah, Jabberwocky. Let's see. Oh right, so yeah, no, in D and D, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe I was misremembering that it vibrated, but um, yeah, according to this, in D and D, the Vorpal Sword is a sword that uh, tends to cut off opponents' heads. Well, like in the Amber books, that he finds a Vorpal Sword, and it's this sort of like all folded up thing that it's all as thin as spider webs, and he un- he sort of unfolds it into this sword that can then cut through anything, and you just fold it up again. And I always thought that was pretty cool, but I think he just made that up. I don't know if there's any canonical detail about what the Vorpal Sword actually looks like. or uh... Yeah, yeah. But like the thing I always liked about the Fracker bracelet I was telling you about is that you just look like a normal person. Nobody even knows you have this thing. Where if it's just like a sword or like a giant hammer or something, you can't just walk into a bar with that, you know? Well, actually, though, like, speaking of the giant hammer, you know, like, one of the other cool things about Mjolnir is that, uh, like, only Thor can lift it and use it, so... I mean, that's kind of an awesome uh, side effect for a magic weapon, right? Because it's like, uh, if you, you know, if you lose your grip on it or whatever, and like, you know, you don't have it, and, and somebody's kicking your ass, uh, they can't actually pick up your weapon and use it against you, because only you can lift it. And, and in the Avengers movie, it was, it was kind of cool. They, uh, at some point, I, I think after they defeated Loki, they, uh, I mean, spoiler alert, like, yeah, I'm big, big surprise they defeat him, but, um, you know, uh, at some point, somebody like just or, or Thor just puts uh, his hammer on on top of his chest, and so he just he's like completely immobilized because it's like you know it's just completely immovable. And actually, speaking of which, uh, that's that's another cool uh, magical item from D and D. There's a 
there's like a something called like the immovable rod or something. It, it's it's basically just like Mjolnir, where it's like the person who owns it can take it and move it around, but then wherever you put it, uh, it can't be moved. Even if it's like in midair. Yeah, yeah. So you can you can put it anywhere, and like it'll just hang there in midair. It's kind of a, a weird item where it's like you you can think of various inventive ways to get out of situations uh, when you're in on an adventure or something, but but it, it sort of calls for creative problem solving. I think my two favorite uh, items from Dungeons and Dragons are uh, the deck of many things and the deck of illusion. The deck of illusion is basically a regular deck of 52 playing cards. Well, 54 if you count the two jokers. And each card has a corresponding illusion. So as you draw the card from the deck, it creates this illusion of whatever the creature is. So there are red dragons, and then like fighters and guards, harpies, frost giants, all the way down to like kobolds and doppelgangers of the actual owner of the deck. You know, and, and of course, those all have, um, the, you know, the rules about illusions sort of correspond to them. So, like, as long as someone thinks that they're real, they are actually real. So, you know, even if you're like a level three fighter and you're facing this massive horde of monsters, you just flip over the ace of hearts and suddenly there's this giant red dragon fighting for you. And so what we would do in my campaign when I had one of these things was, uh, we would get an actual deck playing cards rather than like roll a d100 or something and whenever i wanted to create an illusion i'd flip one of them over and it would create the illusion of whatever the card actually was that we'd flipped in real life so it was this cool way of kind of like integrating real life objects into the game and of course the, there's sort of whimsy to it because you know you may be facing that same horde of monsters but then you flip you know the two of spades instead and all you get is one measly goblin which won't impress anybody and then the deck of many things is a similar kind of thing. You get a, a deck of cards, and each one has like a corresponding effect. Although instead of illusions, they, they all impact the player in some strange way. And they're like massive shifts. They're not all good. Some of the, you know, so some of them are like you acquire massive wealth, or you raise all of your attributes one point. But then there's like really horrible things that can happen to you. Like, you can lose all of your wealth and possessions. You can get your soul sent to a desolate altar plane. There, there's even like one where it changes your character's uh, alignment to something radically different, which obviously can prove to be really problematic if you're like a paladin, for example. And uh, actually, though, speaking of decks, uh, in my anthology of The Way of the Wizard, there's a story called Card Sharp by Rajan Khanna where uh it's it's like a weird western type of story uh it's got this magical deck of cards and and each card is imbued with uh some sort of uh magical power sort of like the two cards are not very powerful whereas the kings and aces are very powerful and so uh like you you know you play a card in order to cast the spell and it's like however high the card is in the deck, uh, you know, the more powerful it is. So every, like when you have a deck, like you can only play each card once. So it's all like, so it's like a super limited, uh, magical system. And, uh, so like, you know, the, it, it gives the character a lot of, you know, a lot of important decisions to make because like, you know, he can only play each of those cards once. 
Well, just when, when Matt was talking about really bad things happening uh, as a result of the deck of many things, it was just kind of making me think that there's, you have this whole category of cursed items, right, which are magical items that are bad. I mean, and, and those have played such a prominent role in fantasy fiction. And if you think, you know, the one ring in the Lord of the Rings is basically a cursed ring. And of course, Stormbringer in the El- Michael Moorcox Elric books is basically a cursed sword. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, uh, like, it's a magic sword, but it's like, it's actually like a, a demon. Uh, and it, it sort of like drinks the soul from people, which is something that sort of has been copied a lot in, uh, various other magic items. Um, but like, it has a mind of its own. But I mean, it gives Elric all kinds of, uh, abilities and stuff, but because the sword, like, hungers for souls, uh, you know, it sort of forces him to do things that he doesn't want to do. And, and so, it basically gives him like life force when the sword absorbs the other souls, uh, and he's a he's a sickly person, uh, and uh, so it's sort of like a symbiotic thing, um, where like he can't help but use it because uh, without it, like he would just die. A magic sword I wanted to mention that's sort of along the same lines. It's sort of a parody of that, I guess. But in Craigshaw Gardner's Malady of Magic series, there's this magic sword called Cuthbert, and it's this awesome sword. But it has a personality. It's a talking sword and it has a personality and it's really, really vain. So it doesn't like getting blood on it. So every time they confront some monsters, you know, the hero whips out the sword and, and the sword's like, can't we all just get along? You know, let's, let's <laughs> not have any bloodshed here. You know, we, we can talk this out. And then, you know, he starts hacking away at the monsters and the sword's like, oh, no, gross. No, stop. Actually, uh, that, that brings up a whole subgenre of, of, of stories, which has the, which is like the talking sword genre. I mean, there's, uh, there's been a bunch of stories that involve that trope. Actually, Tim Pratt just recently wrote a novel that um, is coming out from, uh, I think it's a Pathfinder Tales novel, um, and he was going to call it Bastard, Sword, which is kind of awesome, you know, because a bastard sword is like a sort of a fixture in D&D games, and, uh, but uh, I, I think he's going to end up calling it something else, but basically it's like, it's about a, um, a guy who's a bastard who has a sword. Oh, I thought it was going to be that the sword itself is just like a total asshole, so you're like, oh, you bastard sword. <laughs> I guess, but it does seem like magical swords are way more common than any other kind of magical Mm -hmm. weapon, like by a factor of 10 or something. Uh, Why do you guys think that swords are so much more common than axes or hammers or, Mm. you know, maces, whatever? It's a penis thing, isn't it? I mean, it's got to be a... (laughs) I mean, I I say that jokingly, but, you know, you could go into the whole history of it, but I'll I'll leave that to... More educated um, gender scholars. Um, yeah, I mean, I would have said, uh, you know, probably has a lot to do with Sting, uh, you know, from Lord of the Rings, and uh, and then um, the, you know, the sort of Shannara, so sort of setting the template as like the sword is like the fixture of of epic fantasy, you know, um, and I, I think swords are what we typically see, like in in not only in epic fantasy but in like historical movies and stuff. So like our idea of like these medieval societies or, or pseudo medieval societies as an epic fantasy uh, tends to be focused on the sword rather than these other weapons, even though that may not have necessarily been the case uh, in, in, in actual history. Yeah. I mean, not, not to cast aspersions on the penis theory or anything, but I, <laughs> I heard a, uh, an analysis one time that was saying that the reason swords are so prevalent in fantasy is because the sword is the weapon of the upper class. You know, mm, it's really mm-hmm. it's really expensive to make a sword. It requires a lot of craftsmanship and skill, whereas the peasants, they would just get a spear or a hammer or an axe, you know, stuff that they would have anyway for chopping wood or, or whatever. 
and so that there's some probably subconscious classism uh, right. mm-hmm. embedded mm-hmm. in the in the prevalence of swords. I mean, a magic sword is just inherently cooler than a magical pitchfork, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever seen a magical pitchfork? That could be pretty cool. <laughs> Actually, in, in the computer game Ultima 7, there was the Hoe of Destruction, and it was the most powerful weapon the, in the game, the what, I think. The what? <laughs> the, the Hoe, hoe of, of Destruction. destruction. Okay, so uh, get, getting back to curse things uh, briefly here, um, there's sort of a whole subset of of cursed magical items which uh, involve like evil books you know i edited an anthology called epic which is coming out in november uh which is an epic fantasy anthology and uh so i have a story in there by morcock called while the gods laugh and and it's a story about um you know an evil book and and elric's quest to go destroy it and uh actually terry brooks has one as well um called indomitable um i wasn't able to include it in epic i i would have but uh uh, it wasn't available for rights reasons, but also, like, you know, I can only, only really have one quested Destroy an Evil Book story in each uh, anthology, I think. Unless it's a, like, evil book anthology. Which would be kind of fun to have a book that's con- that consists of nothing but stories about evil books. Yeah. So maybe I should think about that. So so there's that, and then um, Chris Wilrich actually has a really great series of sword and sorcery stories, uh, which all involve the characters Gaunt and Bone. Um, they appeared mostly in FNSF. Uh, I ran one in uh, Lightspeed recently. But uh, there's a book in there called Mashed Rags, Bound and Dead Cow. Um, you know, so Mashed Rags is paper and then, you know, Dead Cow is leather. But um, that's another evil book. Um, and that's actually also a story about them going to destroy it. Um, and so there's one called Penultima Thule, which is basically them going to the edge of the world to, like, throw it off the end of, uh, edge of the world. I find it kind of interesting how there's this prevalence of, like, this idea of the evil book. And I'm not sure really where it comes from. Uh, I well, mean, maybe you guys have some theories. I'm, I'm but... sure where I'm sure where it comes from. I mean, it comes from the Necronomicon in Lovecraft. Oh, is, I mean, is that I, I was going to say? I mean, obviously there's the Necronomicon, but I mean, is that all where it comes from, or was there some? You mean in Legend or something? Yeah, like I mean, was there something that came before the Necronomicon that gave H.P. Lovecraft the idea, or if it, or is all this just coming from that? I, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I'm pretty sure that Lovecraft got the idea from a Robert W. Chambers story called The King in Yellow, which is about a book that makes you go insane if you, and, you know, anyone who reads it goes insane. I'm not sure where he got the idea. I can't think offhand of a evil book in, like, Greek mythology or... I mean, I guess there's the, there's the, well, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but the Malleus Maleficarum. I mean, it's not an evil book per se, but it's sort of like a book about... Uh, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, but that was a guide for detecting witches. I mean, it was right, but nominally but I know, but book. it but it kind of seems evil, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, just the name of it sounds evil, and like I don't know, like it kind of evokes the idea of evil books. No, I, th- I think there's probably something to that. That there are all sorts of books, I guess, on on demonology and just the idea of a book like the Necronomicon, maybe yeah, it does come out of that tradition. Yeah, I mean, it might just be as simple as, you know, the Bible being, quote unquote, the good book. And then, you know, that being being a natural thing to say, oh, well, what about the bad book? You know, the opposite. Yeah. There's a real danger in both games and in stories when the magical items that your heroes have are too powerful. In uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, this is called the Monty Hall campaign, where I guess maybe because the dungeon master is inexperienced or insecure or something just wants to please the players it's like no come back next week i'll give you another 10 vorpal swords and the 
the power level of the campaign just spins entirely out of control. I'll, I'll give one example, I think, of a magical item that's too powerful. Uh, in, in Ultima 6, you start out the game with this item called the Orb of the Moons. And if you figure out how it works, it's a little, there's a little bit of a trick to figure out how it works, but if, if you figure out how it works, you can basically teleport anywhere in the world. And so much of the fun of the game for me was building up enough money to buy a sailing ship, building enough money to buy a skiff and carrying the skiff around and sailing up and down the rivers. And once I figured out how the Orb of the Moons works, you know, you can beat the whole game pretty quickly uh, without having to do a great deal of travel. And I always thought that was disappointing. Although one thing that was cool with those those games, they did actually come with an orb of the moon, like a, a real physical object in the box. I do kind of miss that, that they actually would give you this little magical item you could hold in your hand while you were playing the game or something. But uh, I still think it was too powerful. A lot of games have that moment where you get something, whether it's a teleportation device or some sort of like ultimate weapon that just makes every single battle after that point super easy. In uh, in Final Fantasy VII, there's this uh, stone. It's a summon materia called um, Knights of the Round. It's just this one spell that you can cast if you have this item, and it basically kills any enemy instantly. Um, you just have to suffer through like an interminable fight animation. But once that is over, you basically win every single battle, including you know, including the boss of the game. There was an analysis I read one time of the Perseus myth that I thought was really interesting because, you know, when Perseus is sent to fight the Gorgon Medusa, he's given a magic hat that makes him invisible, some magic boots that let him fly, and a magic shield that allows him to strike without being turned into stone. And the person was saying, doesn't Perseus seem really overpowered in this legend? Like, how heroic really is it to kill a monster with all this magical shit, like, you know, you're like a superhero. And this person's theory was that there had actually been three different versions of the Perseus legend, or however many versions, and each one had involved some sort of magic that Perseus used to defeat Medusa. And then people started just, like, putting the stories together, because they're like, oh, that magic hat, that was cool too, and oh, let's get the boots in here. And that's how you end up with these stories with just so much overpowered magic stuff. Well, and even if you're not too pow- I mean, even if you're not too powerful, I think there's the danger that just having so much magical stuff just cheapens the idea of magic so much that, I mean, you know, when you're, you get to the point where you're like, oh, god damn it, not another magic hat plus five or whatever, or I'll just like stick this in my backpack and sell it when I get back to town. It's like at that point, oh, you know, the whole, the, the idea of numinousness and mystery to magic is just completely lost. It's just become this stat. Uh, so I, I have one example to talk about. Uh, it's not really a, it's not really a magical item per se, but it kind of feels like a magical item. So I sort I, I published a story by Yoon Ha Lee in Lightspeed called Flower Mercy Needle Chain. It's about this gun called Arrogance Flower, and um, it's it sort of takes place in this universe where there's like multiple different universes and everything, and uh, so it sort of deals with quantum mechanics and all that kind of stuff. But that this particular gun. When you fire it at somebody, it kills all of their ancestors. You know, so that's the flower part of the title. But then Mercy, Needle, and Chain, those are also guns that this this weaponsmith, Aragon, uh, created. And they do different things. Uh, so, like, one kills the captain of the of the person you shoot with it. Um, and then, like, you know, then the other two do something else. But um, I just, I really love that idea. It's, like, a very inventive way of coming up with... Uh, 
like this sort of sort of a magical item in a science fictional context, uh, um, even though it's sort of kind of explained by <laughs> by by quantum mechanics. It's like it doesn't really make sense, you know. But it's still it's a, it's a really cool story, um, and you know you can read it for free at Lightspeed if you want to check it out. You know, I mean, uh, the 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 game example that most readily comes to mind for me is Skyrim, just because I've been sort of obsessed with it over the last couple of months. But they have some some of these uh, unique magical items, and so one of them is called the Ebony Blade. It actually you you benefit by murdering your close friends or allies. So, like, you know, if you have a friend and you betray them, like, you know, by killing them, um, the weapon actually gets charged up with more power. So. It wasn't a magical item that appealed to me as a player, but um, but it was a kind of a cool idea. Well, because like, like in the Ultimate series, right, like Lord British would send you on the quest and he would heal you. And so he was really useful to have. And, you know, it was always kind of funny to see if you could kill Lord British. And in most games, there was some way you could do it. Um, and if you got the expansion set for Ultima 7, you got this sword that I now recognize as a total ripoff of Stormbringer. It was this black sword with a demon in it. And you could use that to kill Lord British. And I think it didn't actually get you anything, but it would kind of be interesting if it got you something. But then you don't have this guy around to give you free healing all the time at the same time. So it would actually be, you know, be a sacrifice. Um, yeah, so one of the other cool things in the Ultimate series uh, that I always re- uh, remembered fondly was uh, there was a weapon called the Glass Sword. Whatever you hit with the Glass Sword, it automatically gets killed. Um, but then the sword is also destroyed. But it's, I always like that idea that it's like a one-use sword that like automatically uh, will kill whatever enemy you strike with it. Uh, you know, one of my favorite games was this game called Curse of the Azure Bonds. It was actually a Dungeons & Dragons officially licensed product. They had actually written, it was based on, it was actually just based on a Dungeons & Dragons module, then they'd written a novel and then turned it into a, a computer role-playing game. And so on the cover art, you had this woman with sort of a chainmail shirt that did an extremely bad job of protecting her breasts. You know, and this is a pretty common thing in, in fantasy art. And so I always, but I always thought it was kind of clever that in the follow-up book then, they made it so, no, this was actually magic chain mail. And so not only would monsters be distracted by her cleavage, but then when they tried to stab her there, there was like a force field and their weapons would bounce off. I always thought that was sort of making the best of the absurd fantasy <laughs> art. And then the other thing I kind of wanted to mention is I never played this game, but I was told about this game that had this idea that the potions, you would have these magical potions to boost your stats, and they would boost your stats for a short time, but then after that, your stats would fall lower than they had started. So in, in effect, the potions were addictive. So like once you started drinking the potions, you just had to <laughs> keep getting your fix. Otherwise, your stats would just collapse totally. And uh, I've never seen that in any other game, and I always thought that was a really interesting idea. Oh, so, I mean, I haven't encountered that in uh, fantasy role-playing games, but uh, Fallout actually has something like that. It's not magic. It's not potions, obviously, but, I mean, it's like they, uh, the, the drugs that you can take are basically magic potions. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can get addicted to them and stuff, and so it kind of has a similar notion. Oh, cool. Because, I mean, because potions are actually one of my least favorite things in computer role-playing games, especially in Diablo. Just the idea that you're fighting this 20-foot-tall demon and drinking 20 potions a minute at the same time, it completely obliterates any suspension of disbelief on my part. And I wish they would just make... if they, I wish they would just get rid of it entirely and rebalance the game better, but if they had to keep it, I, would just, I wish they would just make the magic healing wish stones or something, and you just wish to be healed and they disappeared. And then at least there wasn't the 
silliness of imagining that you're actually drinking all this liquid. Like, how big is your stomach? It's just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, Skyrim has the same exact problem, and there's actually some funny videos online of uh, sort of showing what it would be like in real life, because not only can you stop and drink, like, 100 potions in the middle of a battle, you can stop and eat, like... 50 pounds of food or something because you can because you can carry a ridiculous amount you know and it's like the food doesn't heal you as much but it's just like you can just stop and like eat like a thousand cabbages and you know whatever it's like so ridiculous all right so matt tell us about magic the gathering so magic the gathering for those you know uninitiated is this um customizable card game where you accumulate these cards and each card sort of represents one magical spell and so the game sort of takes this form of like a duel between wizards where you and your opponent are sort of trading spells trying to kill the other. There's a large number of sort of like magical items, you know, I guess two of the most famous that I'll talk about briefly. The one is probably the most famous uh, is the Black Lotus. And it's this card that was only printed for a couple of years back in the early 90s when magic first came out. And now it's like the rarest and most expensive magic card. It costs hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars if you want to try to get one online. But basically what the card does is it allows you to instantly add three of what's called mana to your mana pool. And mana is what you use as like the life force or magical energy to actually cast the spells that you use. And so if you were to use this spell early on in the game, when your opponent hasn't accumulated that much magical energy yet, you can just very quickly get an insurmountable lead. Part of the reason that they discontinued the card is because it was just so, so powerful. Uh, and so now there's a lot of, like, legacy around how this card had sort of a, an impact on the game and sort of an iconic card. And then the other one that I'll talk about is uh, the Chaos Orb, which is one of my personal favorites. And so what the Chaos Orb is, is it's this artifact that's kind of like, kind of looks like a beholder. Uh, it's like a floating ball with a really ugly face. And uh, the way the card works uh, is very different from all the other cards. The other cards, you sort of just put them down on the table, and then they're in play, and you use them like you would game pieces on a game board. But the way that the Chaos Orb works is you take it and hold it above your opponent's cards and drop it from a certain height. And the card falls onto the table, and whatever cards it touches that it, you know, when, when, the, when the Chaos Orb lands on them are immediately destroyed and removed from the game. And so you could just decimate your enemy's forces by just dropping it from, from this height. Now, because the cards are not much bigger than uh, regular playing cards, you can't get rid of all of your opponent's pieces. But early on in the, in the early days of Magic, there was this urban legend that came out about this guy who had been in a tournament in a really intense battle. He was facing overwhelming odds, but he got his Chaos Orb. And so he actually, the card says that you have to drop the card from a height and whatever the card touches is destroyed. So he actually tore the Chaos Orb up into lots of little bitty pieces and then dropped it onto his opponent's side of the board, and the little pieces of Chaos Orb fell over everything that he had, including all of his mana, and he was utterly wiped out. And then our hero was able to come around from behind and, uh, and win the game. Years later, there was a sort of goofy joke set of magic cards 
called Unglued. It was a sort of joke expansion. Uh, and one of the cards in Unglued was called Chaos Confetti. And instead of being an ultra rare card uh, like the Chaos Orb, this was a card that you would get, you know, every couple of packs that you'd buy. And the instructions on the card are that when you play the card, you are forced to tear it up into pieces and throw it all over your opponent's board. And then the sort of flavor text at the bottom was, and you thought it was only an urban legend. Actually, that, that Chaos Orbit reminds me of the Sphere of Annihilation from Dungeons & Dragons, which is sort of a crystal ball and anything you throw it at and anything it touches is instantly erased from existence. And I think a lot of these items, you remember them as much because they have a cool name than because of their actual abilities. I mean, you think about like Sphere of Annihilation, I always thought it sounded so cool, Vorpal Sword, Deck of Many Things. Totally, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just kind of like the, the simplicity and wholeness of the One Ring. Well, I think it's interesting that modern epic fantasy basically starts with a story about trying to destroy a magical item. But The Hobbit, you know, the, I mean, the, and that's, that's true. I think that that's that the difference between those two books is really interesting because, you know, in The Hobbit, it is sort of this very simple hero's journey where Bilbo finds this this thing that is sort of, you know, a common trope in many fairy tales. You know, you sort of find the rabbit on the side of the road that gives you some sort of magical power or the cat or whatever. Um, in The Hobbit, it's Gollum, who, you know, is sort of the gatekeeper of this tool that Bilbo gets. And then the whole book changes from that moment on. Uh, it ceases to be him sort of being this miserable worry ward who can't do anything and becomes this, you know, superhero who can turn invisible. And it saves him in pretty much every single chapter after that one. So it is this sort of like simple, yay, you get this magic tool and then you're able to, you know, fight giant spiders and dragons and win the day. But then in Lord of the Rings, yeah, it is this deeper and more mature idea that you know, whatever this powerful thing is, well, power corrupts and it, you have to destroy it. Well, let me let me say, though, in defense of The Hobbit, because that did used to bug me when I would read The Hobbit, that Gandalf would be like, oh, see, I knew I had such good sense picking this awesome Hobbit. And you're like, no, he just he just happened to find this magic ring and anyone could do the stuff he's doing if they had to, if they could turn invisible. Right. But what makes Bilbo a hero in that story is not, I think, all the stuff he does because he can can turn invisible. But when he chooses to steal the Arkenstone of Thrain from Thorin and give it to the you know to the men of Lake Town. It it it's it's nothing to do with any of the invisible stuff really at the ends that defines him as a character. Yeah, and I mean I think that's ultimately true of every story about magical items that it's always gonna be about what the character does not just with the with the item in question, but um, you know, what they do outside of that. Because otherwise, then the magical item just defines the hero, and that's not really all that interesting. And there is this tendency in stories, this is another thing I want to talk about, to use the collection of magical items as a substitute for a story. Uh, people call this a plot coupon quest, where somebody comes to the hero and says, okay, you need to go to the forest or whatever and get the sword or whatever, and then you need to go to the swamp or whatever and get the shield or whatever. And the character just goes around on this... Uh, Scavenger hunt. Uh, I, that that's sort of a trap that epic fantasy can fall into very easily, and something neophyte writers should really watch out for. Uh, so you know, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, 
George R. R. Martin's uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and, you know, that's a very low magic world, so there aren't a whole lot of magical items in it. But, you know, there are some, and uh, including some that are thought to be magic but are actually not. I can't think of ever really seeing it done that way before, where there are these magical items and you're not even sure whether they're magic or not, or whether it's just a myth that's been spun around these items, or maybe this is, you know, there is a magical item, but this is an imposter version of it. I mean, I think it's a very cool idea, just because, I mean, basically, that's like exactly what happened in, in, in actual history, right? Is like, you know, that you had these legends and stuff about these theoretically uh, special items or whatever. And I don't know if anybody actually ever believed that, like, Excalibur was a magic sword or whatever. I mean, certainly people believed in the Holy Grail, for example, or or the Philosopher's Stone. And and these stories just grow and change. I, I read one time that the Holy Grail legend, that the original version of the story was that this stone had fallen from heaven, and it was a grail, G-R-A-A-L, which meant stone, and, you know, sort of like a game of telephone as the story went. People were like, oh, no, it should be a grail, G-R-A-I-L, like a cup. Oh, it could be the cup that caught Jesus' blood at the crucifixion, all this all this stuff. But but the people go off on these quests and they die in search of this thing that if you could trace the story back, plainly, you know, it doesn't even, there was never any cup at all, you know. Um, and, of course, the Philosopher's Stone, I guess maybe people know this. This is common knowledge these days because of Harry Potter, but was a substance that was believed to be able to transmute base metals into gold and people put a lot of effort i mean people are just absolutely convinced that this magical item must be real and uh put a lot of time i mean essentially the reason we have chemistry today is because people spent hundreds of years trying to trying to find the philosopher's stone and uh learn some actual real stuff along the way you know there's also there's a lot of examples of masters giving fake magical items to their apprentices and be like, yes, this will protect you on your journey. Yes, this so you know, this will keep you safe or this will allow you to defeat any enemy. And then at the end of the story, you know, it's always like, oh, it was never magical at all. The magic was in you. I got the ring out of a Cracker Jack box. The Schwartz is in you, Lone Star. Right, exactly. Well, the examples <laughs> I was thinking of are like Willow and um, <laughs> Kung Fu Panda. Did you guys ever have like a rabbit, lucky rabbit's foot or lucky? I certainly did at some point or another, like, uh, when I was little. And, and I mean, I don't remember at what point I, you know, I guess when I started becoming, uh, a skeptic and, and, and said, oh, well, this is just bullshit. But I mean, even so, like I have, um, on my desk, I have, uh, I don't know what kind of stone this is. Uh, it's, it's, it's some sort of like multicolored sort of brown stone that it's supposed to be good luck or something. And like, I don't know. I just, I frequently have uh have had it in my dice bag for D&D because it's like, you know, the the stone it will give my dice good luck. But uh I don't know. I mean, it's just it's just it's just sort of like a fun thing to keep around, um, but I mean, obviously it's it's ridiculous. But that's the thing about magic. It's not really magic, but it is in some ways it can work if you believe in it, sort of like the placebo effect. You know, if you're like, "Oh, this, you know, this penny will give you confidence." Okay, well then I can go out and be confident because I know I have this penny. I guess I think that's a double-edged sword, though. I mean, if the penny is not actually lucky and you alter your behavior, right? But that's assuming that it is, you can get yourself in right. Trouble. But that's you know, but that's like the difference between 
if you have a lucky penny that gives you confidence and you go into a, a dinner party, that might work well for you. But like if you're going to be walking through a really nasty neighborhood that's not safe, no, the penny is not going to keep you safe, you know. Your problem, Matt, is you can't use a penny. It has to be a lucky nickel. Like, duh. Yeah, you idiot. <laughs> what are you, cheap? A penny? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the the one magical thing I can sort of think of that comes to mind, obviously, I didn't believe in it, but when I was in Ireland, uh, there's the Barney Stone, and they say mm-hmm. if you kiss the Barney Stone, it gives you the gift of uh, eloquence. Obviously, there are some people who have written reviews about this podcast who would say that I obviously have not kissed the Barney <laughs> Stone. Uh, but I did. Uh, but I didn't really think it was going to give me magical powers. Although I think probably, to be 100% honest, at the back of my mind, I'm like, ah, I can't hurt. Maybe I'll get some magical powers, you know, who knows. But you think about how many people have kissed that rock. It's pretty yeah, disgusting. Yeah, it's, like, it's and how you can get oral herpes mm-hmm. instead of eloquence. <laughs> yeah, and, and my roommates who are all Irish, they said that they knew people who would sneak up there at night and piss on the barnstone. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. Just to... Mess with the you tourists. Know, so like an, or worse. As an F you to the tourists, yeah. Actually, Wishing Wells. When I was a kid, I totally believed in Wishing oh, Wells. Fountains at the mall, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I guess I believed in that, too, when I was a kid. Uh, I mean, I definitely threw plenty of coins into into such things, although it's often the mall variety, not an actual well that I encountered. You probably threw your lucky nickel into the Wishing Well. I know. And now, and now some, uh, some mall attendant has five times the confidence that I'll ever have. <laughs> All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Anytime, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. And thanks again to Terry Brooks for being our guest today. If you're looking for more podcast episodes to listen to, be sure to check out episode 41 of the Journey Into podcast which features a full cast recording of my short story, Red Road, about two sword-wielding mice who set out on a quest. The story originally appeared in the July 2008 issue of Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, and this recording features me as the voice of the main character, Benjamin. You can find it at journeyintopodcast.blogspot.com. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.